From WPFW News in Washington, this is Monday Morning QB, a news program with a point of view. Today is Monday, January 8th, 2024. I'm Sue Goodwin. And I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. Today on the show, why legacy admissions at our nation's colleges and universities are facing renewed challenge. And combating pseudoscience targeting LGBTQ Americans. All that and more. Stay with us. Nearly 50% of Americans believe the death penalty is administered unfairly. It's the first time in history that number is more than those who think the death penalty is already fair. This next guest, who's a former prosecutor and now leader in the fight to end the death penalty, says research proves mental health and trauma is punished, but instead support services should be invested in to proactively reach the most vulnerable. Reporter Asia Beckham has the latest. My name is Jami Hodge, and I am the executive director at Equal Justice USA, and we're a national nonprofit that works at the intersection of criminal justice, racial justice, and public health. Sort of walk us through some of the changes that have occurred this year as it relates to death penalties, death sentences. The Death Penalty Information Center, which is a wonderful resource, puts out an annual report. Um, And so their uh, 2023 report came out recently. And I I would say the overall takeaway from the report is that as a country, we continue to move away from the death penalty. Um, You know, I want to acknowledge there was a slight uptick in the number of death sentences um, or number of executions that happened this year. Um, Last year, there were 18. This year, um, we were up to 24. But this is the ninth year in a row that there were less than 30. We just generally have come so far as a country from, you know, know, 20, 30 years ago where um, executions were were widely accepted and supported to really understanding um, that this practice does not bring justice. It actually isn't what victims and survivors want. Um, and it is riddled with problems in terms of racial disparities and then and uh, the number of exonerations and, and claim credible claims of innocence that we see in these cases. It seems like of the 24 people who were executed, 79% had serious mental health issues. Also, researchers and experts have found that extended solitary confinement and the harsh conditions on death row cause mental illness in prisoners who already are experiencing existing conditions. What's the solution here in terms of mental health? It's such an important point that you're pointing out that I just want to underscore it, Asia, just um, the folks that we choose to execute as a country are literally the folks who are the most marginalized and who ultimately, as a society, we failed. Um, the, the three most prevalent things that we find in folks who are executed is, is in addition to the serious mental illness that you're asking about, there's chronic childhood trauma, neglect, or abuse. Um, And then the other piece is just brain developmental issues, whether it's due to a brain injury or um, low functioning on the IQ range. But um, we literally have um, our most vulnerable folks that are being executed. And of the 24 
um, people who were executed this year, eight of them had all three conditions. So serious mental illness, serious brain deficiency, and extensive childhood trauma, abuse, or neglect. And so in more direct response to your question, what we do about it is that we have to um, do the work that I'm proud to lead at EJUSA, which is we need to interrupt the cycles of violence that are leading to this focus on punishment, which actually isn't making us safer, but causing more harm. When we fail to address particularly the needs of our most vulnerable, we see what happens. And, and you know, we put so many of our resources and dollars into a system, and, and I'm talking very specifically about our criminal legal system, that whose sole focus is punishment. And I say that as someone who was a prosecutor for more than a decade that that is what the system that's the goal it is not it's not a place to get healing it is not a place um for a, the, an accountability that actually repairs the harm the sole focus is punishment and and often it is punishing our most vulnerable now there's a section of the end of the year report that says most executed prisoners would likely not be sentenced today can you expand on that 29 states have either ended or paused use of the death penalty, and it takes so many years for a person to get to the point of execution. Um, more than 20 years, most people are spending on death row before an execution happens. And so in that intervening time, you know, so the folks who were executed in 2023, if they were had been sentenced, you know, it's because they were sentenced more than 20 years ago. If they were sentenced today, the likelihood that that same conviction would result in a death sentence has just changed because public perception and public perspective about the death penalty has changed um, for the better. Since Attorney General Merrick Gartland has taken office, the Department of Justice has withdrawn notices of the intent to seek the death penalty for 32 defendants that were initially filed during President Trump's administration. Was this a significant increase during President Trump's administration compared to other presidents? Yes, absolutely. There had been um, very little seeking of death sentences um, at the federal level in the prior administrations. What happened under President Trump was really an aberration in what we'd seen in recent years, kind of going back to that point about how over the last, you know, 20 years and, and particularly over the last 10, there's been this move away from the death penalty. So to have the, the federal government sort of reinstate what had been a pause and to do it wasn't like one or two. I mean, the fact that he withdrew 32 just gives a sense of when we're talking about in the entire country, there were only 24 executions last year gives you a sense of how rapid the pace was in the Trump administration. So that is a positive thing. And there's a lot of advocacy around the fact that President Biden campaigned on ending the use of the federal death penalty. So I know advocates, um, we continue to push to not just that it's great that those 32 were withdrawn, but that no additional death sentences are sought and even pushing further to have the current sentences commuted. It seems like the U.S. is isolated in the way that it is a global outlier in its use of the death penalty. For example, uh, the Kenyan president, William Ruto, 
uh, commuted all death sentences imposed prior to November 2022 to life sentences. And in Ghana, joined 28 other African nations in abolishing the death penalty. Why is the U.S. a global outlier? And how did the death penalty even begin? Can you talk about the history of it? Yes. Um, Oh, Asia, I so appreciate this question because um, by centering that question on history um, is is incredibly important. I I usually, um, if if you hadn't asked, I definitely would have gotten there because it's so critical that if we're going to talk about issues of criminal justice at all, we have to, in this country, center it in our history. The short answer to why we still have the death penalty and we're such an outlier um, in the rest of the world is because we have never addressed the narrative that justified slavery, racial terror lynching, segregation, and we passed laws, we had civil rights acts, which legally made changes. But the narrative that underlied slavery essentially was that people are not human. The, the narrative that underlined lynching was that this barbaric practice is necessary because they are so dangerous and so violent. We must be able to have these public displays of force, of um, horror, essentially, to, to control them. And so when we shifted, there's really a direct correlation between the decrease in lynching and the increase in executions. And um, in the early 1900s, as particularly public, things like public hangings, trying to reel in the lynching culture became outlawed in several states, what you found instead were then the result was an increase in state executions. Um, So the correlation is there and it is why we still have the racial disparities that are present. Even right now, more than 40% of the people on death row are black. More than three times what we represent in the population at about 13%. We know that Black people are seven times more likely to be wrongfully convicted. There are racial disparities, not just in the death penalty, but throughout our criminal legal system. And a big part of that is because we have so much work to do to address the underlying narrative that's used to justify these practices. And Jami, can you speak to some of the work that the Equal Justice USA organization has done and some of the important issues such as mental health services, violence prevention, trauma recovery? Yeah. First, we've got a long history in partnering with our grassroots partners in states across the country on ending the death penalty. We've been part of the last 10 or maybe it's 11 states uh, to end the death penalty. We've worked in partnership. Um, you know, and again, these are happening at the state level. You don't end the death penalty without a bipartisan effort. So it's definitely reaching across the aisle and, and creating a big tent for those policy changes. Um, but then while we work to end the state's ability to you know, also um, have work to what we call build the community's ability to heal. Um, So if we're trying to end this response that we actually, a big part of our advocacy is using the voices of survivors, uplifting black murder victim family members and other victims um, who traditionally in the survivor movement 
victim movement haven't been the center, often marginalized voices by uplifting them and listening to what they really need and really want um, is it is around how do we make communities safe right now um, and understanding that punishment and, and we are excessive as a country in our use of punishment, not just in the death penalty, but in our use of incarceration. You know, we're number one in the world in terms of the um, number of people we incarcerate with only about 5% of the world's population, but more than 20% of the world's incarcerated population. But that that isn't making us safer. And when we listen to victims and survivors, um, they, you know, there's lots of survey data that says what they would rather have the underlying causes addressed. So to have a person get the services they need, which better equips them not to cause harm again than to just pursue punishment. And so a lot of our work is really one, just centering those voices. How do we create platforms and uplift, um, our grassroots partners who are most impacted by violence and make sure that their experiences and and their solutions are known and resourced. And when we talk about solutions, what we're talking about is addressing the root causes. So we know some of the things that drive violence. We know that trauma is a driver of violence. We know that poverty is a driver of violence. Isolation is a driver of violence. So when we can create and amplify and support solutions that are addressing those root causes, that's how we really get to safety. And so that looks like the work we've done in Newark, New Jersey, and work we're doing in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, where in Newark, what you have is we we call it a like ecosystem that is an ecosystem, a public safety ecosystem that is community centered. And so it's when you think about public safety in Newark, it's not just the police, but we documented in a report more than 20 organizations that make up that ecosystem, many of whom are grassroots and they're working with youth, they're working with survivors, they're addressing trauma, they're addressing those root causes. Awesome. Anything else that you want to share, Jami, that I may not have asked? The last thing I would ask is just for people to learn more, you know, to follow us, you know, go to ejusa.org, follow our work, help us tell the stories of the interventions that are working in communities across this country um, and get involved. There are petitions, particularly in death penalty cases. There are calls to actions to call governors. You can vote who will help in the death penalty in your country. You can vote for your local prosecutors who can set different policies where they don't ask for death sentences or they're not taking these very extreme punitive approaches. But learn more, help us share, and get involved. On January 1st, three states, Idaho, Louisiana, and West Virginia, joined over a dozen others in implementing laws banning gender-affirming care for trans youth. The laws are just one component of an anti-trans moral panic sweeping the United States, fanned by politicians and grassroots activists alike. About a month ago, the Southern Poverty Law Center published a detailed report on this moral panic, focusing on the networks that produce and distribute anti-LGBTQ pseudoscience. The report is titled CAPTAIN, which stands for Combating Anti-LGBTQ Pseudoscience Through Accessible Informative Narratives. 
Emerson Hodges is a research analyst at the SPLC's Intelligence Project and a co-author of The Captain Report. Hodges explains how this pseudoscience creates what the report calls a manufactured doubt about the existence of trans people. These groups are not acting on good faith. The key to pseudoscience is that it sounds scientific. However, it does not hold up to any sort of methodology. So when we presented manufactured doubt, we were definitely trying to illustrate that these groups are not putting forth accurate scientific information. They're merely trying to create disinformation to poke holes in and to inflame fear and inspire doubt in the existence of trans people and non-binary people and inspire doubt in the process that helps trans people become their, their full selves through gender affirming care. Yeah, it seems that all of the pseudoscience that's discussed in the Captain Report is, is founded on the notion that LGBTQ plus identities are, are quote, treatable and, and requiring a cure, which obviously implies disease or dysfunction. Um, mm -hmm. I think it might be helpful to talk about a couple of the, the specific or key pseudoscientific claims made by these anti-LGBTQ uh, plus groups. One that really stood out to me was this claim of so-called rapid onset gender dysphoria that spread as what they called a form of, quote, social contagion, um, again, using this language of disease. Um, take a couple minutes to talk about why this claim in particular is harmful and untrue and perhaps identify other tropes or claims that our listeners should be aware of. So one of the key things that comes to mind when, when you ask that question is the disease rhetoric that you're talking about and the the main model of how anti-LGBT pseudoscience functions. So the main goal of anti-LGBT pseudoscience, and this goes back to like the ex-gay movement of the 90s, if not, you know, earlier, it is used to claim that LGBTQ identities and people are either a danger to themselves, a danger to others, a danger to society as a whole, and are unnatural or sick and require to be cured. We have seen that, you know, back in the 90s, those claims were harder to combat, right? Given the fact that, you know, I believe it was the 1970s and 80s is when the DSM stopped listing homosexuality and uh, trans identity as a mental disorder. A lot of these groups would like to see LGBTQ people and their identities pushed back into that time period. The usage of rapid onset gender dysphoria was essentially built on a claim that as young women go to college, they are seeking to advert misogyny, advert any discomfort, and then just transition. This, you know, this operates on a sort of like bad faith accusation that trans people don't exist and people just transition to get away from different levels of oppression. However, you know, we illustrate in the report that the reason that trans people do struggle with mental illness and acceptance and stuff is purely on the fact that this sort of disinformation and pseudoscience has been perpetuated at such a high level. And the moral panic has reached such a fever pitch that it has become very difficult to be trans 
and not feel targeted, not feel isolated, not feel divided. Um, I know that's kind of a long roundabout to your question, but I do think it's important to think about the history of that kind of that kind of rhetoric and how you know how dangerous it is and how it's actually impacting trans people. Um, not that you know being trans comes with this. No, being being trans is perfectly acceptable. People live long and healthy lives post-transition, right? Um, and the sort of rhetoric tries to undermine that and claim that trans people are inherently uh, mentally ill or inherently uh, wrong and unnatural. I definitely want to get more into that history. But first, I want to talk a little bit about the, the current uh, organizational structure of the anti-LGBTQ plus movement. I think the Captain Report does a good job on, on pulling back the curtain on some of those those organizational qualities. Um, the report discusses what it refers to as an old guard and a new guard of anti-trans medical professionals and activists who found common cause in, in the modern day. What are these these two groups, the old guard and the new guard, and how are their interactions important in explaining the current rise in anti-LGBTQ plus sentiment and policy? When we think of the two different guards, as far as old guard and new guard, one of the most important things is the old guard has laid the groundwork for a lot of this networking and planning around anti-LGBTQ and anti-trans policy and litigation. So when we refer to those groups, we're talking about Alliance Defending Freedom, Family Research Council, um, American College of Pediatricians, as well as even older groups such as the Family Research Institute headed by who, you know, we consider to be the grandfather of the modern anti-LGBT pseudoscience movement, Paul Cameron. Paul Cameron functioned off of the same ideas that you had spoke about previously of LGBTQ people being diseased. So the old guard has really, you know, put forth a great deal of effort and groundwork to disenfranchise the rights of LGBTQ people. The new guard, however, has currently come into this movement and it involves a lot of different types of groups that are solely focused on anti-trans legislation and policy and rhetoric. These groups mainly formed to try and create a veneer of academic and psychological, psychiatric, you know, front to perpetuate the same sort of rhetoric and the same sort of uh, claims and pseudoscience into it and repackage it into a new campaign of disinformation. So the old guard is very much entrenched in disenfranchising the rights of LGBT, like sort of spectrum of things. New guard is definitely more on the side of trans-exclusionary feminists as well as even some divisive groups such as like Gays Against Groomers who are purely LGB. These groups typically are ideologically opposed, right? However, we've seen them seamlessly sort of align on gender affirming care and attacking trans and non-binary identities to further push anti-LGBT rhetoric and policies, regress rights, as well as, you know, participate in a moral panic that's been manufactured. One of the other interesting distinctions that the Captain Report 
makes organizationally is it kind of breaks anti-LGBTQ plus groups into three categories, one kind of research focused, one that's referred to as narrative manipulation groups, and a third that's more legal advocacy and think tanks. Can you take a minute just to talk about what the distinctions between these groups are, what their roles are? And I'm curious whether the old guard or the new guard favor one type of organization or the other. So typically, I think the old guard is very much in line with the um, legal advocacy portion of it, as well as some of the research research tanks. However, I'm not entirely sure you could call American College of Pediatricians sufficiently a research tank. They're definitely more in line with uh, lobbying, as Quentin Van Meter likes to attend legislative hearings and was even appointed, I believe, to the Florida Medicaid Board, unfortunately. So when you think of the three different types, it's very clear that legal advocacy groups, as well as the think tank and research groups, are definitely built on an old model. Obviously, Alliance Fending Freedom is more on the policy, the legal stuff, and their old guard. And American College of Pediatricians also are old guard. But then you have groups like SEGM, you have groups like GenSpec and Wolf that really participate in the sort of research tank slash narrative manipulation aspect of it. And Gays Against Groomers has really um, done a lot to create narrative manipulation, given their position, uh, their position on dividing the LGBTQ community. Another aspect to the narrative manipulation is anti-trans detransitioners that have been picked up by both old and new guard. Um, so when we discuss these groups, we're accounting for, you know, as far as narrative manipulation goes, the active campaign and PR machine dedicated to pushing this disinformation. The legal advocacy slash think tanks, that's dedicated to pushing policy models and fighting legal cases. And research groups are dedicated to supplying the anti-LGBT pseudoscience to help both support the other two. There's been several leaked files, leaked email files that have came out in 2023. And we do show some of the old guard groups asking newer groups for research materials or white papers on gender affirming care. And it's very clear that these groups sort of function symbiotically off of each other. Lastly, I'm, I'm curious how you see this, this contemporary brand of anti-LGBTQ plus politics spurred on by pseudoscience playing out over this upcoming election cycle, right? Well, do you see the moral panic prevailing or can progressive forces effectively combat this pseudoscience? I started working here back in 2015 right before, you know, in June of 2015, um, when the Oberfell decision came down and around the time that Trump had, like, really pushed into his election cycle. It's very clear from a lot of the gatherings that I have seen over the past couple months, for instance, the Pray Vote Stand Summit that took place later on in 2023, there was a lot of rhetoric about gender ideology about protecting children, about parental rights. And that was just a warm-up. These were just candidates presenting themselves. Mike Pence was there. Vivek, I believe, DeSantis and Trump um, were all present giving speeches on this topic about protecting children. 
I don't think that's going to end anytime soon. I don't, you know, given what I have seen in the past and the parallels that we're seeing today, it is definitely going to be a huge factor in the election uh, cycle, given the fact that a lot of public officials over the past year and the past three to four years that we've seen this sort of this wave of anti-trans legislation actively rationing up each year, it is definitely going to play a huge role in that sort of disinformation in the election cycle. Outside of the fact that it's harming people, outside of the fact that it's, you know, preventing people from accessing life-saving care, it will most likely be used to gain political capital in this election. So when you ask that question, you know, thinking about it going forward, I don't think it's a hopeless situation, though. And I've said this before, we all have a role to play in countering this disinformation, in helping to fight and have real discussions about pseudoscience and how it is impacting gender-affirming care and life-saving care for LGBTQ people. Disinformation, you know, we we have exposed all of the hundred cited sources, right, as essentially being falsifiable and lacking in methodology. So as long as, you know, I think it's great that you're covering this report because I think it makes a huge difference. Um, I know that, you know, Ron DeSantis is one of the biggest purveyors of this pseudoscience, even appointing Quentin Van Meter, right, over the Florida Medicaid board. I don't think it's hopeless, but I do think we have a lot to worry about as far as this rationing up to a higher level. But like I said, we all have a role to play at the end of the day. And as long as we're educating ourselves and thinking critically and having authentic conversations going into this election year, there's a real chance that we can help change the narrative manipulation that's happening. That's Emerson Hodges research analyst at the Southern Poverty Law Center. Learn more about the SPLC and its captain report by visiting splcenter.org. That's splcenter.org. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. In a historic decision last June, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that universities could no longer consider the race of a student when making admissions decisions, effectively banning the use of affirmative action at all publicly funded American colleges and universities. Since that decision, practices such as legacy admissions that favor white and wealthy students are also being challenged at campuses across the nation, including Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. Reporter Noah Portner is a student at Georgetown University and filed this story. To get an idea of the racial consequences of legacy admissions, it helps to look at the data about who gets admitted. According to a study published by the National Bureau of Economic Research in 2019, nearly 70% of legacy students at Harvard are white, 
and these students are six to seven times more likely to be admitted than non-legacy applicants. Additionally, a more recent study by Harvard economists found that legacy applicants are nearly four times more likely to be admitted than other applicants, even with the same test scores. These inequities have sparked a debate in campuses across the nation. In our own backyard at Georgetown, a petition has been circulating calling for the abolition of legacy admissions at the elite university. Citing legacy admissions as a factor preventing the primarily white institution from admitting a more diverse applicant pool. The document has now been signed by at least a thousand students, faculty, and alumni. Among them is Mark Giordano, Dean of Undergraduate Affairs and Professor of Geography in the School of Foreign Service. Although he wanted us to stress that he is here not as an administrator representing Georgetown's position, but as a concerned educator, trying to share his insights about legacy admissions. We asked him how and why he chose to get involved and how he thought legacy admissions impacted campus life. If something hits you as right or wrong, you go with it or against it, and uh, legacy admission strikes me as wrong at this time. And so I've said things about it, and I've uh, supported students in their effort to remove it from Georgetown just because it doesn't feel right to me. A group of students sometime prior to COVID, prior to George Floyd, had a petition to bring it to the university that, to remove, get rid of legacy admissions, and it didn't go anywhere. And uh, a second petition started more recently, and interestingly, because students graduated, the second group didn't realize the first group had <laughs> existed. And so, uh, because both of them had contacted me, I connected them. Mm. <laughs> so some universities such as MIT and Johns Hopkins don't use legacy admissions. How do you feel this impacts the student body and campus life? There are lots of issues with admissions at every university positive issues and, and negative issues. Whether or not there are legacy admissions may or not actually change so much what the composition of the place is because it's the legacy admissions are connected with a lot of other things. But at the same time, the, the fact that there is legacy admissions sends a message. And people understand that there are legacy admissions and it feels unfair. It feels unfair and it certainly, by almost any measure, is unfair. So if you have a place where there's competition for almost everything else, and then there's this statement out loud that for certain things you get a preference based on who you are. To me, that, that affects the, the mood of the campus and, and how much pride people have in their place. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, not to mention the impact it would have on people who want to apply, apply to, to such. Yeah, you think twice, as you know, especially if you simultaneously have a policy where you are stating that legacy admissions is part of the, the practice, and you're trying to say that you welcome people from all backgrounds and want even more diverse backgrounds. There's a, it's definitely a, mis, a mixed message. Mm -hmm. uh, Yale, Cornell, Duke, and many other prestigious universities have already committed to legacy admissions. If Georgetown really wants to cement its place as, a, as an elite university, should it follow suit? No, I don't see why. You know, if you want to cement your position as a elite school or whatever, however you want to cement your position, I don't think you follow what somebody else did. I think you do what's right for your mission and what's right for the type of impact you're trying to have on students and the type of impact you're trying to have on the world. Prior to June of last year, universities used affirmative action as a tool to increase campus diversity. Affirmative action mandated that at least a certain number of people from all major ethnic groups, especially underrepresented groups, were admitted into a given school. Most schools used affirmative action until it was struck down by the Supreme Court. 
The Supreme Court, notably the conservative justices such as Neil Gorsuch, viewed affirmative action as unfair due to the lack of race neutrality. Yet intriguingly, conservative justice Neil Gorsuch said that legacy admissions was flawed on the same grounds, that although legacy admissions look race neutral on the face, it undoubtedly benefits whiter and wealthier applicants in the same way that affirmative action benefited people of color. In other words, both legacy admissions and affirmative action are unfair because they give preferential admissions to specific ethnic groups. Although whether or not the Supreme Court will take action on legacy admissions remains to be seen, I asked Professor Giordano if he viewed the two issues as the same or different. You could think through this with a lot of subtlety, but I think one way to approach it is to think about the difference between form and function. You can have two things that appear to have the same form, but the way they're implemented have different functions. And one of the functions of affirmative action was to increase the range of voices, the range of opportunities that universities were affording. The function of legacy admissions is not that. Mm -hmm. Even if so even if their their forms are the same, appear to be the same, they're the way they're implemented, their functions are different. The intentionality, in other words, is two completely different. Yes. An issue unique to Georgetown is that of slavery. Until 1838, the Jesuit priests who run Georgetown owned hundreds of enslaved people held in plantations in Maryland. These people were sold to keep the university financially afloat, and in recent years, Georgetown has been trying to cope with its legacy of slavery and restitute the descendants of the original slaves. We were curious what insights Professor Giornato might have. I don't think there's a direct tie between legacy admissions and Georgetown's uh, history of, of slavery. One can imagine an indirect, in, in an environment where, on the one hand, we want to try to correct recognized ills, recognized sins of the past, and on the other hand, have set up a system that ingrains a, a problem of the past or, or you know, cements a privilege and passes it down. Uh, they, they seem incongruous to, to try to do both, to hold legacy admissions while also trying to make amends for previous sin. So another mixed message. Another mixed message. Another mixed message. Is there anything else about this issue that gets you going or any personal anecdotes you want to share? I mean, one of the things I try to do, I work a lot on thinking about what our curriculum is, thinking about how things are taught, thinking about who's teaching them. And then, and a lot of this has to do with some recognition that you know, maybe we didn't have as as broad a set of voices in our in our classrooms and our teaching. And I'm at a school of foreign service where the idea is to have global perspectives. So on the one hand, working on issues like that. On the other hand, having legacy admissions is a it's a, a difficult contradiction for me personally to deal with. Mm -hmm. Just because you strive to have just more diversity of voices is, in general. It, yeah, and this seems to work. This seems to work counter to to a lot of the effort that that many at the university are, are working on. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Is there anything else? Uh, no, so actually the one thing I'll, I'll say that uh, on the, the personal side, so my daughter is 17 and is thinking about, uh, I'm a first generation college student. I went to a place called Whitman College in Washington State. My daughter's applying for colleges now and one of the places she was thinking about was, was Whitman College. And on the application form, it had the question, you know, did any of your family members um, come here? And she was actually 
discussing with me the moral dilemma of she said she didn't want to write that any of her family members went there to not have that influence the decision but also it wasn't an option to say there wasn't a no comment option so she said if she didn't check it she would be lying on her application mm. <laughs> but if she checked it she felt uh, wrong about it uh, so I don't I don't know where that fits into this story but it was just uh, it's interesting to me. That that that's that's interesting to me as well because I never thought of electing to say if you were applying as a legacy. But uh, it's interesting to yeah. note that that's not even a possibility. You can't yeah. even elect to say no. Judge me blindly. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm sure it wasn't. I, I don't think it was done with purpose on the on the application. It's just you know I think we're now more aware of what the issue is. And, mm-hmm. and unfortunately for my daughter, she's very aware that she's my daughter. <laughs> That's right, you bring it up. That was Mark Giordano, Dean of Undergraduate Affairs and Professor of Geography in the School of Foreign Service, speaking on the legacy admissions debate. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Noah Portner. It's been almost two weeks now that we learned of the death of Tommy Smothers, one half of the groundbreaking comedy folk duo, the Smothers Brothers. He passed away at the age of 86. Along with his brother Dick, he co-hosted the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour, a show known for hard-hitting political satire on themes that remain relevant today, as you can hear in their rendition of The Impossible Dream. Good evening and welcome to another evening of primetime variety. We'd like to begin this show with one of the most inspirational songs that's ever been written, entitled The Impossible Dream. To dream the impossible dream To fight the unbeatable foe to bear with unbearable sorrow, to run where the brave fear to go. This is my quest to follow that star, no matter how hopeless, no matter how Impossible Dream from the Broadway show Man of La Mancha. It tells the story of the brave, the courageous Don Quixote. In this song, The Impossible Dream, it tells of his quest, his impossible dream, his vision and his courage. I think that this song has a message for every person in our audience tonight. Why, in fact, this song, this song has a message for every single living person in the entire world. Come, 
what is the message this song sends to you? I, I'm sorry, I, I wasn't paying attention. I, I, I just didn't hear. I, 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 I didn't pay attention. I wasn't you weren't paying attention. I wasn't paying, I'm sorry. Tom, it is important. This message is so important. It's a simple one, but it's so important. It says, fight for what you believe in. That's right. Fight for what you believe in. If you believe in something strong enough and it's important to you and helps your fellow man, then no matter what the odds, no matter what the possible outcome, if you stand straight and tall and fight for your convictions, then you, then you will be the winner. No matter what the result, you will be the winner in life and help build a better world. That's what this song means to you. Do you understand, Tom? Did you listen to me? Did you pay attention? Yes. Did you comprehend? Yes. You did. The impossible dream. The impossible dream. 200 years ago, the world gave birth to a new nation, America. And George Washington was father of our country. George Washington. George Washington, they said George Washington slept here, he slept there. <laughs> Yet he was still elected president. <laughs> Today, that is an impossible dream. George Washington, I think we all remember the, George, the story of George Washington and the cherry tree. George Washington chopped down the cherry tree. He just chopped it down. He just willfully chopped down the cherry tree. Yet, when asked about the chopping down of the cherry tree, George Washington said, I cannot tell a lie. I did it. I cannot tell a lie. I did it. Some historians believe that was the last time a president had a memory. <laughs> but my friends, there's cherry trees in all our lives. Today there are cherry trees being chopped down and no one's claiming they did it. No one will admit and say, yes, I did it. Why can't today's leaders just say, yes, I did it? Yes, I did it. Why can't they say, yes, I knew about the arms deal? Yes, yes, I slept with other women. Yes, I stole money and never told anybody. Yes, I made a mistake in Central America. Yes, I am a crook. Yes, I'll write a book. Why can't they just say yes? Like Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North Potter said, great moral lesson. He taught us, he taught us that it is better to tell the truth about a lie than to lie about the truth. Yes, 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 just say yes! The impossible dream. Les McCann self-taught jazz pianist and vocalist who stretched into genres of funk, soul, and world music, died on December 29th at the age of 88. McCann played with a wide array of musicians, from jazz hornists Eddie Harris and Benny Bailey to contemporary stars, including the Stable Singers and Santana. Perhaps McCann's most famous recording is a 1969 live rendition of the socially critical song Compared to What?, performed with Eddie Harris and Benny Bailey at the Montreux Jazz Festival in Switzerland. Rest in peace and power, Les McCann. Mm -hmm. 
for love I'm hanging on me push and shove Possession is the motivation that is hanging up The goddamn nation looks like we always end up in a rut Children are killing frogs. Poor dumb rednecks rolling logs. Tired old ladies kissing the dogs. I hate the human love of that stinking mud. I can't use it. I'm trying to make it real compared to what. what it's for nobody gives us a rhyme or reason half a one doubt they call it treason we're chicken feathers all the way out one The wrath of God, preachers filling us with fright. They all trying to teach us what they think is right. They really got to be some kind of nut. I can't use it, I'm trying to make it real compared to what.
being where's that honey? Where's my God and where's my money? Unreal values of crass distortion. Unwed mothers need abortion. Kind of brings to my old young King Tut. He did it now. Try to make it real compared to what? And that's our show for today. Rest in peace and power, Askia Muhammad. Thanks to our engineers. I'm Chris Bangert Drowns. And I'm Sue Goodwin. Thank you for listening and supporting Jazz and Justice Radio in the nation's capital. Thank you.